Welcome to the Bedrock Podcast. Please pardon the background noise, our studio is under construction. If you have any comments or would like to ask follow-up questions, visit us at doverspark.org. Enjoy the listen. Hey Eagle Wing, this is uh, Major Tim Hubler from the Commander's Action Group, and I'm here with your Wing Commander, Colonel Safranik, and also Senior Master Sergeant Kuhn from the Superintendent of the 3rd Airlift Squadron. And today we're going to discuss um, Colonel Safranik's trip to um, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force's Wing Commander's All Call. Um, so we'll jump into it with a couple questions. So the Wing Commander's All Call, what exactly was that, sir? Hey, that's where uh, once a year, every September, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force gets all the wing commanders from the active guard and reserve together, and he spends about two days with them running through a series of discussions and issues and kind of highlighting specific topics. So was there a primary topic during the all call or what all did it highlight? Now, the first thing he started off with and, and really tried to emphasize is, is readiness is still the number one priority. Uh, he encouraged all the commanders, if they hadn't read the National Defense Strategy, to take the time to go out and, and read it. Uh, you really foot stomp that uh, you know Russia is the near threat, uh, but but China's the real threat uh, over the long term, and you can see a lot of that laid out in the national defense strategy. So when he came to the base earlier this year, he was talking about um, us needing 386 operational squadrons to be the air force that we need. Did he bring that up down at the all call for you guys? Um, he did, but it was more a re-emphasis of of last year and, and what was discussed, and that that number is uh, still the, the same. So he's foot stomping that the size of the Air Force and the operational side still needs to be 386. And sir, to, to get back to uh, what you said about readiness and, and Russia and, and some of those near peer threats, what was the takeaway for us here at Dover? Uh, I know that's kind of conceptual and big picture now, but what would you say is um, we could apply to our airmen here at Dover with that topic? Uh, I think the biggest thing is kind of the shift in mindset, which which is also trying to shift the focus. And we've spent the last 15 to 20 years with violent extremism and, and everything that we've been doing in the Middle East is, is a primary focus. Uh, and it's really getting towards, hey, our training, our equipment, uh, the things that we need to be doing need to be geared more towards that what we call near peer or uh, competi- uh, great powers uh, state competition. And, and how do we get ready for that sort of a fight? What's, what's interesting is actually the morning that um, I was getting ready to go to that briefing and listen to the television in my hotel room, uh, CNBC that morning had some sort of comment talking about the economy and, and, and the competition going on between China and the United States. And even the CNBC reporter stated the fact that um, he felt that we would be reading in history books 100 years from now how we handled China today. So that's how pivotal it is, not just in military terms, but also in economic terms, where our focus needs to be. So when we're talking about readiness, we hear the term two plus three all the time. And I heard you talking about China and Russia, and I think that's the big two. But when you hear two plus three, what does that actually mean? Sure. So when they, when they refer, that's a great question. When they refer to two plus three, uh, the, the two primary are, are China and Russia. And then the, the three are going to be Iran, North Korea and in our current uh, situation with violent extremists. So what does this actually mean for Dover as far as readiness? Are we, are we being 
train towards that two plus three? Um, we're trying, at least here at Dover. And that's what you're starting to see in some of our recent exercises and the way that we're trying to line up, hey, how would things be? So for example, one of the things that was foot stomped is um, your, your home station is no longer a, uh, an unimpeded place to launch from. Uh, in the past, if you look what we've done for the last few years, we've launched from home station, we go to, the, to Europe, and then we work our way from Europe to, to the Middle East, and, and it's done without any sort of, we have complete impunity across the board, no questions asked. Um, now we're starting to look at, hey, what happens if we get hit at home? Hey, what happens? How does the base work uh, with power, without power? Where, where exactly are our shortfalls to make that happen? So, you know, it starts kind of with the concept and the idea and the focus, and then you start to see a shift. The other questions that the Air Force is starting to look at on a, on a larger scale is, is how, do, um, how do we take on uh, some of these, these larger fights? And the one thing that they're finding is what they refer to as multi-domain operations. And the fact that how we do our air battle management and the air battle management system in the future is really going to be what they've termed the, the pathfinder. Um, it, it's got to be more than just the air picture. It's got to be the air. It's got to be the sea. It's got to be the subsea. It's got to be the land. How do all of those communicate and talk together in order to really have a, the decisive effect on the battlefield that we need? So what's the biggest threat just here at Dover that airmen need to be looking at? I mean, is there something that we can be doing each individual, each individual, individual person um, just to be ready for that, that environment? Um, my opinion would be we're extremely focused and, and, and capable and efficient and effective with, with automation. Uh, and, and, and anyone that's going to take us on knows that. So the real question becomes, if they know that and that's what they're going to hit, how do we do our jobs the old-fashioned way? Uh, when was the last time somebody learned how to do something manually, without a computer, without a telephone, with, without some sort of electronic automation that makes our jobs easier and faster and quicker and, and more efficient? Uh, you know, I go back to the days when I was a co-pilot, uh, the computers and the jets did not crunch takeoff data. So we went to the jet with a couple sets of takeoff data during mission planning, and then we had to be prepared in the airplane if it didn't meet certain parameters to start going through what we called spaghetti charts in order to figure out our, our takeoff data. You can go to the aerial port, it's the same thing. There's a computer that'll punch out load plans, but when was the last time somebody went through and figured out manual load plans? Um, and that list goes on and on and on. Uh, you look at our uh, deployment machine and our personnel deployment function, uh, we've gone to electronic folders. Well, if those electronic folders aren't there, do we have a way to look at that backup and do it manually? So in each of those areas that you discussed, sir, you talked about things becoming easier, faster, and more efficient. As that came up, we reduced our manpower and we've focused more on talent. Talent is the chief of staff of the Air Force. Um, talking about talent management, these are topics that are discussed on how do we keep the people that we have that are able to do what you're telling them they need to do? Sure. He, he, he did as well as the, uh, the Air Force A-1. Um, one of the things that you talk about because we did decrease in size is just you know, quality or quantity to a certain extent is its own quality. Um, so increasing the Air Force and making it a little bit larger uh, on our current efforts right now to get up to 340, 350 or so thousand people, as well as like we talked about growing the Air Force to that 386 operational squadrons, which would be an even future future growth. Uh, and then the A1 talked about the talent management reform that they're trying to take place. Um, 
What they want is a little more participation. If you look at the newer pieces of software that are coming out in the talent marketplace, it's not so much just, hey, here's my five choices. You know, I hope to goodness it all works out, right? Now there's a little more of a, uh, here, here's my five choices. Uh, you can even go in and grade particular locations and, and put stars next to them in places that you want to go more, more than others. Um, they, they're looking for participation from your outgoing squadron commander and unit commander in order to, to uh, kind of drive uh, a recommendation on, on where you should go as well as folks like myself that will go into the system for vacancies that we may have and being able to pull some of that data uh, to see where, where people are coming from. And the same thing with uh, 365 deployments. So in the future, what they're trying to work towards is to build an app, an app for 365 deployments that gives people visibility on, hey, you know, not, not everybody's crazy about doing a 365, but if you know that your time is coming up, if you know that it's possibly going to be in your near future, then at least if you can look on that app for different locations and maybe say, okay, um, that's the location that I'd like to do it and I can volunteer for it, then more people at least get a choice in that process than necessarily being, being thrown a, a certain direction. Uh, they were also able to go through and just kind of identify, hey, what are the top five locations, geographic locations that people in the Air Force want to go, as well as, hey, what are the bottom five locations? that people want to go, and then you can kind of peel back the onion on on why is that. Did Dover make the top five? It did not make the top five, nor did it make the, the, the bottom five. I'm sure it was it was somewhere uh, in the middle easily. Are you allowed to share any of those top fives? Um, I'll share the bottom fives unless it, you can, but uh, top fives would be nice to know. I didn't write them down, but but some of them are, are, are um, you know, no surprise. So, so Colorado or Colorado Springs, was was in the top five. San Antonio was in the top five. Um, I can't remember some of the other places. Uh, the the bottom five were once again no surprises. There's there's um, a place in Wyoming I'd never even heard of. I honestly had to Google it. It's a small station that doesn't necessarily have an exchange or a commissary or anything like that. That you probably drive a couple hours to Fe Warren just to kind of get your your services and your support. Um, the other one was up in, in North Dakota, uh, same thing, a small space station near the uh, Canadian border where you go down to Grand Forks about an hour away, 90 minutes away to get to a population, to get Fine. to medical care and, and that sort of thing. So you could see why those weren't necessarily uh, highly desired locations. So as you're talking about stations and deployment, um, is that how the Air Force is focusing on, on development of their uh, talent or is there, you know, I heard a lot of talk about officer development and trying to get retention of for officers. What's the big um, focus for officer development on PME side? Well, on the PME side, they're um, really trying to push Air University instructors. Uh, the chief has kind of looked at it over the past and some of the quality that we brought into Air University. And the irony is there, there have been people over the last few decades that are Air University teaching that didn't necessarily qualify for IDE or SDE in residence. So you kind of scratch your head and go, why would the people teaching not be the people that we would have sent to that school? And you've seen over the last few years where they've done some things where some of the IDE programs, the intermediate, intermediate developmental education, they've uh, had people go through the course and then stay for a couple of years afterwards in order to teach, um, as well as the, the chief has recently put an emphasis on instructor duty as being a part of our career development and progression 
in order to encourage folks to go to places like Air University or the Academy or various other places to teach um, as a way to kind of highlight the significance and the importance of, of what's going on at places like Air University. The other big change in, in officer development is, is he was looking at the, the line of the Air Force developmental categories. Basically in 1947, there were four categories for promoting officers. It was the medical corps, the legal corps, the chaplains, and then kind of all others. And there were only about nine subcategories in that all others in 1947. We've remained relatively unchanged in our four primary uh, developmental categories with the exception of that line of the Air Force category, instead of having nine subcategories, there's something like 40 or 50 subcategories in it now. Uh, and what they found by looking at it is it's kind of like smashing a, a, round, a round, uh peg into a square hole of some sort, um, not one size fits all. So the chief was looking at changing that in order to have about six other categories uh, that the line of the Air Force category would break into. And, and that allows certain career fields to be matched against other career fields of, of like types. Uh, they did a bunch of town hall forums on it uh, in order to kind of ask, hey, hey, how many people agree or disagree? And, and they found in general that about nine out of 10 people said, hey, they softly kind of agree with this. They think this is a good way to go. Uh, but at the same time, they're finding out that, um, that there's always a little bit of worry, right? Anytime there's, there's change, it's a matter of does this help me? Does this hurt me? Does this make things better? Does this make things worse? So um, there's some cautious optimism that, that people still want to see, you know, what exactly is it going to do? Now, now, with that being said, the chief also said that they're going to send out to the MAGCOMs. They're trying to build out what would, what would look like um, the, the career development in that particular breakdown of a category. Uh, and they're going to have each of the MAGCOMs look at them. The MAGCOMs are going to send them down to the wing so that we can look at it and say, yeah, that's about what it should be like so that when the stuff gets published, people have a good idea and there's been a little bit of buy-in into it. So you brought up a lot on the officer development and a lot of the officer-focused PME. Did Chief Wright have a chance to come talk to the wing commanders at the all-call? Yeah, he did. He, he had a short period of time on the last day we were there, um, and Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force Wright got in there and he one of the things that he talked about was they're trying to figure out a way to transition away from, from the written WAPS testing. Um, in his mind, a little bit of an older way of doing business and they're working on some alternatives, but like all things, uh, one, you got to figure out what those alternatives are and then send them out, maybe test against them and, and see, are they really better, worse, or just different? Uh, did it chief, right? You got me thinking, sorry for the sidetrack, right. but this is my first year of, testing for chief I didn't have to study and I, I agree with the way he's going because it's taking so much stress off of me when I'm uh, not able to study all the time and can actually focus on work and not studying before work and after work. Um, did Chief Wright talk about anything else while he was down there with the wing commanders? He did. He spent some time talking about uh, the fitness program and really if you go to uh, any of his discussions during AFA that are probably out on the internet somewhere um, that kind of walks through his, his philosophy. Thoughts are, um, how do you get away from fitness as being a test once a year, once every six months, and get it into more of a culture or a way of life? And so the folks are just really the goal is to make a healthier lifestyle than necessarily an annual test. But they're looking at various things. They're looking at um, 
do they separate your waist measurement from the test? Because there's a lot of folks that are doing crazy things to get their waist down to a certain uh, size. And then when they go out to run or they go out to do their push-ups or sit-ups, they're just exhausted or, or out of energy. So if they uh, measure your waist one week and then you come in and do the other test a week later, then those two get separated and you get a chance to kind of recover. Um, they're, they're looking at, at other options as well, uh, maybe doing mock fitness tests. And then if you do your mock fitness test and it and it passes, then maybe that counts to try to alleviate some of the stress and just really get it, hey, can you do this test or not, uh, versus stressing out about it. Uh, but no definitive answers were necessarily briefed as much as just things that they're considering. Sir, I know the chief had brought up before um, commander's PT program or a new commander's standard. Was, was that discussed at all? It, it wasn't so much a commander's standard, but the, the chief of staff of the Air Force had really kind of emphasize with commanders in general that, hey, commanders, you need to be fit. You need to set the example, um, and fitness needs to be a part of your life. And in that way, you're, you're able to also work a pack with, with the airmen in your unit. So he just re-emphasized that need that, hey, you know, get fit, be fit, eat right, get sleep, do the things that you got to do in order to be healthy. So it's not just training for marathons? No, it's not, especially if you're someone like me and, and don't necessarily like running as much as I have to to make up for the M&Ms that I like eating. So while we're talking about new things that you hear on the, the news and the internet and stuff, Space Force, did that get discussed at all? Is there, are we still going to the new Space Force? Um, we are, but I'm, I'm gonna jump back on a, on a few other items before we jump off of uh, Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force. The, the other thing, which may seem far away from, from most other people, but, but I think is a, a good thing and applicable, um, was he spent some time talking about command chiefs. And, and he said, one thing is they're realizing that they're moving command chiefs too much. Um, very similar to a lot of the other folks in the Air Force that are saying, hey, why is there so many movements? Um, so what they're trying to do is kind of normalize more of a, a 24 month-ish cycle for command chiefs. They're trying to forecast out a little bit more of, hey, if we've got a cycle built in there, then we can have a little bit more product, uh, not productivity, but predictivity into being able to predict, hey, that's gonna be vacant, and then let's figure out who goes in there next so it's not quite a, hey, guess what you're doing in the next month and a half as, as you move. And then he also talked about command chiefs, and, and it really kind of goes into that senior NCO core of chiefs in general and senior NCOs in general are, are really good at what their particular AFSC is, are really good at their particular piece of the pie for where it is that they work but as, as you rise in rank, you've got to get out of that very uh, thin, narrow sliver of the pie and just get into to a larger, broader level of experience. And, and it goes back to what the Chief of Staff of the Air Force talked about even with the wing commanders. Hey, if you guys are in this room and, and readiness is number one and things are lined up in the National Defense Strategy of what we're supposed to be doing, how many of you have read it and how many of you are starting to pay attention to what's in it? Same question goes out specifically to the Chiefs as well as the Command Chiefs and, and I'd even say the senior NCOs. Uh, you know, you get into the National Defense Strategy, the thing's eight to 10 pages. It's a pretty, pretty quick uh, executive summary that you can read through and get an idea of, of what's being said. Um, that way, they're, they're able to know what's going on across the Air Force, across the MAGCOM, and across their own base. They're necessarily just very narrowly focused in their own foxhole. All right, sir, thanks for the answers on the Chief Wright. Um, but going back to the previous question about the Space Forces, What's the progress on that or, or the outlook? What can we expect? Yeah, so um, 
the chief is pretty positive on the idea of a space force. Uh, he kind of said, hey, it's a, it's a civic lesson to a certain extent. He said when he, when he first started off thinking about it, uh, he looked at it from an Air Force perspective, and, and at first um, he came out in the news and I think the media and everything is, is not being uh, 100% behind it. But he said, look, man, I got to look at one piece of the pie. You know, I got to look at the Air Force. I got to look at the Department of Defense. But he said a lot of these national leaders, they're looking at, at, at the diplomatic side of the house. They're looking at the economic side of the house. They're looking at the military side of the house. You know, they're looking at a much broader perspective. And he said, you know, when I look at it from that perspective, you bet this is this is the right way to go. Um, so he is really behind the, the president's uh, idea of, of doing the Space Force. He thinks the president's right, and the time has come for a separate service. Now, um, the next question becomes how? How do we do it? Do we, do we separate it completely so that it's own complete separate service in the same way that the Navy and, and the Air Force and, and the Army are separate? Or do you do it something similar to the Navy and the Marine Corps? Um, and, and the push really for now is, hey, let's do it kind of like the Navy and the Marine Corps. Let's have a department of the Air Force, and then there is the air side and the Air Force side of that, and then there is a Space Force uh, side of that as well. Um, the trick is, how do you make them separate and separate enough that they have their own innovation, their own ideas, their own culture, their own way of doing things, but at the same time not so separate that the two don't work well together and they're more or less at odds against each other instead of working in some form of uniformity. What would be the time frame of that? Oh, your guess is as good as mine, to be honest. The future? Um, how soon in the future? Don't know. I mean, it's still got to work its way through, but uh, the Air Force in general is for the idea and has really kind of switched gears to how, how do we make this happen? And, in you know, in a similar manner that we write books on on very first time the Wright brothers flew an airplane and we write books on how the Air Force separated from the Army Air Corps. He's pretty convinced that history books are going to be written right now. And and how is the Air Force going to be seen as it went in to doing this sort of thing? And he wants it to be seen as, hey, we've taken the time to do the right analytical rigor in this. It's not something we went at emotionally. It's not something we went at kind of just holding on to something that is ours for the sake of holding on to something in a rice bowl type fashion, but no, let's put some logic, let's put some reason, let's put some math and thought into this, and, and how does that come out on the other side? That's interesting, sir. So you brought up earlier multi-domain um, command and control, then you're talking about Space Force. It's a lot of change for the Air Force. Um, what what direction do you see that going from here? Yeah, um, it is a lot. Of, it is a lot of change, and and. I don't, I don't necessarily know. I mean, they're, they're trying to figure that out on the exact specific direction things are going to go. And a lot of that will depend on, on decisions that Congress makes, decisions that the Chief of Staff makes on what that Space Force looks like. Um, but, but I think the important thing to remember is change isn't necessarily bad. And just because uh, things that you have go away doesn't mean that you're no longer not needed. Uh, and a great example of that is, and the chief even said it, he said, hey, as we look at multi-domain operations, um, we're, we're probably going to have to get away from a platform-centric mindset. And he said, if you think back to the, when the Air Force started, it was very common for people to join the Air Forces, particular pilots, fly multiple different types of platforms, multiple different types of airplanes, and come out of their career doing all sorts of different things. Um, 
You look at General Fogelman, who was a former chief of staff of the Air Force, who was one of the first commanders of Air Mobility Command, but yet he was a fighter pilot. So you got a guy that flew fighters, then flew heavies, then went on to be the chief of staff. That was very normal in the past. Now, in today's day and age, we're, we're set to a platform. These airplanes have been around for so long that you'll spend your entire career in the C-17, your entire career in the C-5, your entire career in the AWACS, you know, you name the particular platform. So as it goes away, or if it goes away, um, that's okay. Your, your identity isn't lost and there's still a need for you. And a, and a great example of that was there, was there was a general officer there that shared a personal story where um, he'd flown the F-117 and he had, he had just made colonel and he was lined up to be an ops group commander in New Mexico in order to run the operations group for the F-117. And right as all that was aligning, the Air Force came out and announced the F-117's going away. So in his mind, not only was the F-117 going away, but he was kind of going away. That was it. There, there was no longer a use for him. Uh, you know, the Air Force had kind of gotten rid of whatever it is that, that he did. Um, and he said, that's not what happened. He said, the Air Force couldn't use me as that ops group commander, but they were able to shift me over to another job as a vice wing commander. And then I went on to be a wing commander. And then, and then now he's a general officer and he's still cranking through. So I would just kind of encourage folks as change takes place, take a big deep breath and, and, and realize there's still plenty of options and plenty of need and there's maybe some cross training involved or some sort of training involved. That's an interesting story sir and that story you're talking about the uh, commander that felt like the Air Force no longer had a use for him and he was going through lots of changes and they, they found a need for him. Um, there's a lot of change going on just locally at Dover and we saw a lot of changes in the med group. Did you guys talk about the, the future of the med group changes and where the Air Force is going with that? Sure, sure, good question. So that locally, there's been two changes and a, and a third potential change. Uh, the med group realigned underneath the Defense Health Agency for a lot of its, its functional policies and guidance. And to be honest with you, the medical group commander is probably the one that, that feels that every day the most. Most other people, it's probably relatively invisible to. Um, and then there was a change in the organizational structure of the types of squadrons in the medical group. And we obviously knocked that out this summer as well. Same sort of thing, same numbers of people, same functions, but the organizational structure changed. Um, so not too much of a significant change for the average person going over to the medical group. The third one that is, that is out there is uh, it's on the table and it's sitting in Congress right now, which was to, to change the number of personnel and potentially have manpower cuts to the medical community across the entire Department of Defense. Uh, that's the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, uh, all of us. And if that were to happen, then obviously the Air Force would take a certain amount of cuts, uh, Air Mobility Command would take a certain amount of cuts, and Dover Air Force Base would even take a, a certain number of cuts as well. Uh, originally, that was supposed to be in place by the 1st of October of this year. Obviously, the 1st of October is uh, coming and, and, and there's no particular changes in place. Um, but it's still in Congress, and Congress is, is trying to, to figure it out. As they passed it up, there, there was a lot of, of questions, in particular for places like Dover, because Dover has a, a small population around it. So if the base was not able to see folks, fair enough, they can always uh, do a TRICARE referral and go downtown. If you're in a place like Chicago or New York City or Los Angeles, uh, the population from the base that would go downtown would easily be absorbed. Here in a place like like Dover, even one of our sister organizations up in McGuire, 
not quite as large of a population in the surrounding community. So, so can it absorb it or not? And that's the part that Congress is, is trying to figure out right now, as well as big Air Force. And that's still undetermined. So as you're talking about med group changes, makes me think a lot about how we take care of our airmen. Uh, back in September, we did the resiliency tactical pause. Uh, any, did we get any outcomes from that? Did we reach the goals that the chief of staff had for us in our resiliency tactical pause? Yeah, the chief, the chief asked about that as well. He spent some time at the resiliency tactical pause, um, really kind of looking for feedback from the different wing commanders. Uh, was it a success? Was it not a success? Did it hit the mark? Did it not hit the mark? Uh, and, and pretty much across the board, most people said absolutely uh, well time spent. The, I think the biggest feeling for most commanders was just the fact that the Air Force kind of said, hey, we've got an issue. You know, it's kind of like a lot of different things. Recognition and, and, and not denying it is, is the first step. And so having the Air Force come forward and just say, hey, there's a particular issue going on and uh, we need to kind of get after it was appreciated. Uh, having the wings have the freedom and, and the squadrons and even the smaller groups have the freedom and being able to determine what to do uh, versus being told what to do was, was appreciated. Um, and, then, and then probably the last piece out there, which was feedback for all commanders, and this probably goes to frontline supervisors as well as uh, superintendents, senior NCOs, commanders at, at all various levels. The, as strange as it seems, the one thing that the airmen really want more of is better communication. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day that even said, for as, as technically savvy as this newer generation is, they don't want information via Facebook. They don't want information via the internet. They don't want information via an email. Uh, they kind of want their supervisor to take in a lot of this information and data and sit down and talk to them. And, and this is my opinion and my opinion only, but I think some of it is there's so much information out there, sorting through it becomes a little bit of a challenge, um, as well as trusting in some of that information. So by having a supervisor who they trust and respect say, hey, I've looked at all this information, I've narrowed it down, this is the piece that I think is important based on my experience, and by the way, hey, this, this is what I back and believe in as well, just has more oomph to it than, than, than an email or something that gets printed out on the printer. Um, and in general, you know, there, there, there's a push across the board, obviously, and we hear this even here at Dover for a more time for some morale events, more time for some team building events uh, in order to make some of this stuff happen. And I think that's what the, the RTP really did was you had the chief of staff from the very top saying, we're going to take the time to do this amongst everything else, this will get done. Um, and I think that was appreciated across the board. Yeah, it's interesting. That brings almost leadership back to, to what you want or that, that core of leadership of that communication. Before, when, when I was a young airman, we didn't have any information. So you relied on your supervisor to feed you that information, give you that information because we didn't have email. We didn't have the computer, um, Facebook type stuff that we can get information. Now there's so much information we're almost doing the same thing, except we're trying to, to pare down that information to what really is important. Um, it's interesting that, that we're getting back to the same core leadership that we did before, just from a different angle. So when we're talking about base resiliency, uh, what what is the future of like Dover Air Force Base if we went to war and we had it we had to go forward from here? You're talking about defending our base. What about 
us leave going forward to an expeditionary setting. Sure. So, I mean, Dover's always going to have a piece in that because of the fact that it's our, our mission for rapid global airlift out of Dover. Uh, anything that goes forward will most likely come on a C-5, C-17, or a C-130. So we've got two-thirds of that. Uh, the chief of staff specifically talks about, hey, as we get into that expeditionary environment, we've spent years and years and years at places like, uh, you know, IED and Bagram and, and they're very well-established locations. Um, we're going to have to get into an environment where we're going to a place that is not well-established. So he sees it in kind of five basic steps. Uh, step one is to establish the base. Step two is to defend that base. Um, and we may end up needing augmentation um, in order to make that sort of thing happen and then receive follow-on forces. And in his mind, that's joint forces, allied forces. So we may be establishing a base and defending a base that may not even be primarily for U.S. forces. It may be for our allies as well. And then once that those follow-on forces are received, uh, the next step is to establish C2 and then to be able to fight from that base. Um, and there's and there's a lot of different concepts into how to fight from, from the base. So if we were to go forward in an expeditionary type environment as a base and you as the commander, what would be back at Dover? What do we leave back? Is it reserve forces that stay here at Dover or do we not take the full base with us if we were going forward? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I'll just kind of, you know, words are important. So. You said, hey, if I were to go forward and take folks with me, those days are probably over. I mean, you look at the way that we deploy now, at best, a squadron may go forward because uh, we're built off of those UTCs and those unit type codes. Uh, so the odds are for what stays back here, me, most likely, um, keeping keeping the base and, and, and everything going. Um, you may end up seeing the ops group commander go forward. You may see the vice wing commander go forward, but those will be as a part of deployed UTC packages than, than necessarily the entire base picking up. Uh, so it'll be very similar to, to, if you crack open the history books, you look at uh, Desert Shield and Desert Storm when everybody went forward. And you know, I've talked to members of um, the third airlift squadron back at that time that said, we had four people. We had the squadron commander and uh, three other people in the squadron that were left behind. And it was usually people that had some form of a reason to not be deployable. Uh, besides that, the rest of the squadron was cleared out. Um, I think at one time, you know, I've, I've heard people talk from Desert Shield and Desert Storm that said 35 C5s were on the road. And wow. We don't even have 35 C5s at this base right now. Um, so we, we probably have the equivalent of even less than that. So imagine that pretty much every single airplane, except for a few here and there, would, would be on the road and the units would be gone with them, uh, which means you got a little bit less work back here. You know, you don't need maintainers here in full force if the majority of airplanes are gone, but you'll need some in order to deal with what comes back here. Uh, you're going to find that uh, I even look back to 2001 when, when um, September 11th happened, and you'll find that security forces will go forward, and then your number of contract security forces at home station increases. So you'll probably see more of your, your Department of the Air Force contracted security forces than necessarily the blue suitor security forces. Uh, and you'll find a lot of other places where we'll step up with contracting or other things in order to allow the blue suitors to deploy. Sir, with that, that list you read off there, with establish the base, defend the base, et cetera, doesn't sound uh, too cosmic. I mean, how is it different from what we do now other than we already have established bases? Can you give like a scenario of how we would implement that? Sure. A lot of this is in conceptual formats, but there's, there's a lot of different names for 
one particular concept. Uh, I've heard it called adaptive basing. I've heard it called a dynamic wing. I've heard it called rapid raptor. Uh, but a lot of it is being able to go to a particular location, fight out a location for a period of time, and then putting everything onto airlift and, and then going to another location. Um, so in order to do that, you're obviously going to need airlift. So we're going to be in the thick of that. But instead of deploying like we do now, where we go to a place and there's a bunch of C-17s or a bunch of C-5s, you may find uh, a few C-17s and a, a few C-130s working in conjunction with some fighters um, as a small, more uh, complete package as it hops around. Uh, the other thing that the chief talked about was the, the multi-domain operations. Uh, and, and the way that he designed or talked about that was a lot of different things are not so much platform centric um, and that this particular platform does one thing. And if you look at the KC-46, it's a prime example primary purpose is air-to-air -air fueling, but it's got a lot of other bells and whistles that allows it to pass information as needed to, to other aircraft. You see that in the fifth generation fighters between the F-35s and the F-22s. Uh, the information's almost as powerful of a weapon as necessarily the, the bombs and missiles and, and that sort of thing as well. Uh, and the ability to use all that information to keep ahead of your enemy in that OODA loop is, is gonna be, become primary. So is that new concept, that new strategy, um are we preparing ourselves for the next fight with China and Russia? Are, is that where that will be implemented? Uh, obviously, once you get good at something like that, you're going to use it with any and all fights that, that you happen to get into. Um, but, you know, a China scenario is a, a great place for, for how it would help give us an advantage, right? Uh, the thing that you got to think about with China, which, which is interesting, is once again, just like the, the question that you asked, Chief, I said, hey, look back at Desert Shield and Desert Storm, look back at September 11th. If, if you look at China and you go back to the Cold War and you look at the USSR, you know, at one particular moment in time where the USSR was probably its strongest, if you compared the USSR to the United States, it was maybe 30 or 40 percent of the U.S. Uh, economy, uh, which always kept it at a, a distinct at it at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, but if you look at China today and the economic power that it has and it's growing, um, Depending on what economic uh, indicator you use, China's pretty much on par with the United States in a lot of different areas. Uh, somebody told me, uh, I think about a week ago, just talking, and so the numbers may be off because it's secondhand information, but they said, hey, the United States had some of its best growth in the last couple of years, and it was something like two and a half, three percent growth. China has had some of its worst, worst growth in, in quite a few years and it's like 6%. So their, their worst growth growth is, is literally two, if not three times larger than what we're seeing as our best growth right now, and they're, and they're on a country that's on par with us uh, economically. That, that just makes them a lot more difficult than the previous USSR. All right, sir, just from an officer perspective, uh, I've heard rumors going around that uh, the below the promotion zone, uh, in the zone, uh, all that, those categories are going to go away and they're going to look at officer promotions differently in the future. Uh, can you give an update on that? Sure. Good question. Um, it, it, very similar to like fitness testing and some of the other things that we discussed. There's thoughts and there's ideas, but there's not a definitive decision yet. So with the uh, promotion zones, one of the things that the chief of staff is, is considering and he's looking at is sunsetting the, the below the zone promotion category. 
to him, he, he really wants to empower performance and promote based on more of a, a, of a um, merit, an order of merit. So his thought is, hey, you just get a zone. And, and when you're in the zone, you compete against all the other people that are in that zone. And then they rack and stack it. And the people that don't hit the cut line will not get promoted. And those that do, uh, if, you're an air, if you're an officer competing in a category and you score the absolute highest, your line number is number one. So it's no longer based on some sort of, hey, when did you graduate or what's your time in, in grade or something like that. It's, it's based off of where did you rank order. So in that way, that one person that performed really well will kind of advance a little bit to the front, but won't quite be a, just a, a below the zone. Um, and then it's done based off of performance each and every time. He, he doesn't want to have a year group. Um, he just wants to have that particular zone that would allow you to have a window to potentially get promoted in. So if that was put into place, I mean, theoretically, the, um, you could have people on equal um, on an equal playing field the first year or the fourth year. Um, if all the records look at the same the same opportunity to promote. That's that's his goal. Is now, in all honesty, there's there's there's. You know, I've sat on enough of these different types of boards. Uh, if somebody's one or two years, it's kind of hard to tell that they're one or two years apart without looking really, really close. You get somebody that's six or seven or eight years passed over, um, you're looking at eight extra performance reports in there at a particular grade. So then it, it becomes obvious, even though, once again, the guidance from the secretary, the guidance from the chief of staff would be, hey, hold everybody equal and, and, and try to do it. So. Um, it's not going to be a perfect system because a perfect system doesn't exist, but it would be closer. I think what the Chiefs are trying to, to get away from is uh, Air Force officer development really in some ways in the joint community is, is seen as, as a little bit of a different trend. We've got some of the youngest officers at each rank, and a lot of our officers uh, lack the joint experience that they need. Um, and it's because we've got these promotion zones and they're so close together and we're trying to keep everybody kind of cranking and and moving. So if you loosen those particular windows and get rid of the below the zone, it gives you time for officers to spend at that rank a little bit more and potentially grow and develop more. And then at the same time, you now have a little more time before your next promotion to get some officers uh, rotated through some joint jobs to get that joint experience. So as they're more senior, they're able to speak in a joint community better. So the, the burning question then is, is there a any idea of a time frame at this point, or is this just the begin starting the conversation? This is just starting the conversation, uh, whether or not he he does it or not. And if you'll notice, once again, in my opinion, with this chief, he has a tendency on a lot of things not to just roll them out. Uh, very much like he did with a lot of these other things, he'll do town hall meetings, he'll have discussions, he'll ask commanders to go out and collect some data, and then he wants to look at it first. It, it goes back to what he talked about, even with branching off into the space force that he wants to be seen as the organization that does it with analytical rigor instead of, hey, we're just going to do this emotionally. Awesome, sir. Well, uh, about to wrap it up here, but do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I, the more and more I do of these uh, um, podcasts, the, the more I kind of almost have the same closing, closing thought at each of them, which is just um, I know that there's somebody listening right now, and, and there's probably something that was said that maybe it was misunderstood, maybe it was taken from a different angle, maybe we didn't explain it as well as we should have, and they're gonna be all fired up and, and who knows what they'll they'll let loose as they talk to their folks around the water cooler or they get on the internet or whatever else it is. Um, I just asked folks, man, take, take a big deep breath. 
Uh, our, our purpose of sending these out is to get information out so that, that people can listen to it and at least hear what's going on. Uh, if there's any sort of frustration or any sort of, hey, this wasn't explained right, I mean, you can find me on the global as much as you can uh, uh, anyone else. Look me up, send me an email, say, hey, I, I don't quite understand what you said or what did you mean by that? And, and I'll be more than happy to, as long as this comes to a small limit of people, you know, too many people get a hold of me, who knows what will happen. But, but I've already had some discussion with some folks over the phone uh, to try to clarify some issues so it doesn't fire anybody up too much. And most of your commanders have heard. You, I know you briefed a lot of your commanders, so if people have questions, they can go to their commanders as well with these. I've had phone calls from DIA. I've had phone calls from the Pentagon. So because some of the stuff gets on the Internet, initially we were looking at using these as professional development around Dover, and we're finding out that because of the Internet, they're going much further than just Dover. Fine. Well, thanks, sir, for taking the time and CMS Sergeant Coon uh, for joining us today. That's all for, for this session. We'll catch you next time.